0: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Nick Yablon, who is the author of Remembrance of Things Present, The Invention of the Time Capsule. Nick, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Rebecca.
0: So I'm hoping you could start by sort of talking about how you got interested in this topic and sort of researching this history of the time capsule.
1: Well, I suppose the the moment of origin was, was reading uh, a science fiction book from 1911, uh, called Darkness and Dawn, and um, discovering all these references to time capsules—literal time capsules or, or virtual ones—they didn't call it. The author didn't call it a time capsule because that term wasn't in existence. Uh, but uh, it got me thinking about, you know, how this tradition emerged. Uh, when did people start to deposit things for a, for a date in the future? And I was already aware at the time of the famous Westinghouse time capsule of 1939 to 40 uh but uh didn't know until I did all the research that in fact there were as many as thirty thirty five um proto time capsules going right back to eighteen seventy six so that's the initial kind of uh kind of conception but really the time capsule um was a natural topic for for me to write on uh because it's at the intersection of of a variety of academic interests i've had over the years so um one interest I've had is the apocalyptic imagination and my first book on timely ruins looks at. Uh, these kind of secular visions of of ruination. And, of course, time capsules are sometimes imagined as, as reaching beyond some kind of collapse of civilization. So that was a connection there. Uh, I also have interest in memory studies and history of monuments and memorials. And, of course, the time capsule is a kind of a monument, a kind of a mo- memorial as well. Uh, I'm interested in, in history of collecting and collectors and archives. And, uh, again, the time capsule is a virtual kind of collection. Um and I suppose more broadly i have interests in in temporal studies and the, the history of history of the future or the history of past futures um, and i 'm um, an urban historian cultural historian by training uh, with a fascination with the world 's fair so all of these things brought me to to time capsules and so perhaps it 's kind of inevitable that I would have ended up writing a book on it uh, but that's that 's the general kind of uh, uh, kind of sense of origin of the of this project
0: so if- I have to say first, I found it really interesting um, because I'm I walk by a time capsule almost every day. That's sort of sitting outside the library in the small town that I live in. Um, so it made me think of that, and and I am a really big fan of mysteries. And the new Nancy Drew is there's a time capsule that's involved in that. So, oh I mean, really? I
1: have to I have to check that out. <laughs>
0: yeah, there's this whole thing about this time capsule. So it's become really. So I was like, oh, this is fat to sort of read your book and read the history. It's yes. fascinating.
1: Well, it's interesting because uh, you know, although I started researching actual time capsules from the Progressive Era and Gilded Age, uh, I also kind of expanded the project to look at things like that. So representations of time capsules in fiction, uh, going right back to early science fiction, um, and um, and there's a kind of rich history of kind of imagining um, time capsules that actually fed into uh, uh, fed into this tradition um, and uh, gave ideas and and also critiques of the time capsule. You, if you imagine what happens in the future when they're opened, uh, you can kind of uh, critique how they're done in the present.
0: All right. So you start us off with the bicentennial. Um and sort of placing us in sort of um one of these sort of first this sort of photographic um the the photographic time capsule, and so can you talk a little bit about this this first time capsule that you start talking about um
1: sure well, in fact uh, there were there were two it was a twin birth of the of this tradition uh uh because uh there was the the one at the centennial exposition in Philadelphia that was launched by a publisher Anna Deem, and um but at the same exposition a photographer called charles mosher from chicago uh, presented his collection of photographs and um sometime after the exposition decided maybe influenced by Anna Deem, he decided uh, to expand them into a larger collection that would be deposited in a, in a bank safe so uh there are two two kind of figures that uh kind of co-invented uh, the time capsule, if you like, uh, there may have been early ones, but in ten years of research, I wasn't able to find any prior to 1876. If we define the time capsule as something with a target date, as opposed to just a, a deposit in a cornerstone or anywhere else, uh, so uh, these two figures um, introduced the idea, and um, so it has clearly a connection to uh, to the, the centennial and to the idea of looking back over the past hundred years, but also um, kind of trying to historicize the present and imagine what will happen to the U.S. by the time of the bicentennial. So there's a simultaneous kind of looking back, looking at the present and looking forward uh, that seems to generate the, this tradition of the time capsule.
0: Right. And one of the things that was interesting is sort of the role of technology and that sort of comes through. Um, But thinking about, um, photography and how technology sort of influences this idea of creating a time capsule and creating this link. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, um, there are actually a variety of technologies that might have had something to do with uh, the idea that Moshe and Deem had. Um, One technology was also introduced at the uh, Centennial Expedition, that's a telephone um, Alexander Bell's invention, it didn't attract much attention at the exposition, um, but it. Uh, we might think of these two uh, uh, inventions, the time capsule and the telephone, as um, devices for expanding the horizons of, of communication. Obviously, the telephone allows you to communicate across greater spaces, uh, whereas the time capsule allows you to, to communicate across time. So, uh, so I was thinking about the time capsule as a device for communication that had connections to not just the telephone, but also the telegraph and the postal service. Uh, we could think of them as uh, as kind of postal boxes for the future. In fact, one time capsule uh, advocate in in San Francisco three years later called his an antiquarian post office, delivering antiquities to the future. Um, so, so there's technologies of communication, but there's also, of course, photography, and I think that's the crucial the crucial technology in the, in this chapter because um, this kind of cultural photography that was oriented around portrait galleries and, and the collecting of photo albums uh, was crucial to uh, to Moshe and Deem's um, time capsules. Uh, because um, they were, they consisted almost entirely of, of uh, photographs. So Charles D. Mosher was a photographer, and Anna Deem uh, uh, collected photographs, and she enlisted, uh, enlisted um, photographers to provide portraits uh, for her for a capsule. And uh, so I trace these kind of connections with with uh, portrait galleries and and uh, various other kind of practices of photography.
0: Right, and another thing that I found really interesting is you also talk a bit about how um, this is also political, right? Um, you talk a bit about the, the business class and what this means sort of in a political stance. So can you talk a little bit about the politics you also found in these two early time capsules?
1: Yes, and, and this is a theme of the whole book in a sense that uh, uh, um, time capsules have a variety of, of um, political uses and uh, it's a very complex um, kind of open-ended practice. Um, it doesn't determine the political content at all. So uh, in this case, we have um, uh, two figures, Moshe and Deem, who appear to be you know um, uh, very loyal to the capitalist elite. And um, they bring in uh, a banker to, well, uh, Dean bring it, brought in a banker to to seal the the safe to turn the key. And um, she was uh, connected to the Republican Party. And um, uh, but what happens is that the uh, neither of them were able to actually seal their their safe uh, in 1876. And uh, partly through lack of interest, it took a while to get this idea out to the public. And so uh, there's this delay, and during that delay, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 occurs, and uh, you have uh, labour struggles coming to the fore. And what what happens is that their their time capsules evolve into more ambivalent um, statements about um, class uh, problems, um, about um, also gender and racial inequalities. Um, So they are... um, although primarily kind of uh, statements of of a capitalist elite, uh, there are kind of interesting moments of ambivalence. Uh, For instance, Deem uh, brought in uh, someone, uh, who Elizabeth Thompson, who was a, uh, an advocate of workers' rights and, uh, a founder of utopian workers' journals, journals. So, uh, you know, there, there is definitely some interesting kind of uh, tensions within those early time. Right.
0: capsules. Right. And I want to come back. You talk a bit about, um, this idea that time capsules you mentioned weren't necessarily all that well accepted or people were excited. So you talk a bit more about that later mm-hmm. in the book. So I want to come back to that, but, um, Let's move. And so we have these these sort of first two time castles and then you continue on um, in the sort of same time period as to what's happening in San Francisco and the building of this sort of monument um, to Benjamin Franklin um, and the temperance movement in San Francisco. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of second chapter and what's going on in San Francisco during this sort of same time frame?
1: Sure, yes. Well, this is the antiquarian box that I I just uh, alluded to. And it's um, put together by uh, an eccentric uh, dentist and and, uh, millionaire called Henry D. Cogswell. And uh, it seems to be um, uh, initiated as a kind of monument to himself. And uh, uh, he deposited a lot of his own souvenirs and documents about his his philanthropy and his great business acumen. Um, But in order to, to To create the time capsule, and this is the kind of tension of all time capsules, they may start perhaps uh, out of motives of self-memorialization, but they can only um, go forward if they uh, incorporate uh, others and if they open themselves up to collaboration. So uh, he permitted San Franciscans, in fact, quite a wide variety of San Franciscans. He didn't have any class or ethnic or gender restrictions, uh, but he allowed them all to contribute. He solicited even children's uh, as submissions. He also is quite, um, quite kind of um, uh, had quite a lot of latitude in terms of materials, um, m- printed ephemera, material artifacts, uh, documents about ordinary experience of San Franciscans in the period. I should mention this is 1879, so uh, so still very early on in this uh, in this tradition of the time Right. And
0: so he's doing this, and one of the interesting things that you mention also is that his audience is a bit different right and and so can you talk a little bit about that and how you see the role um how do you see the audience change in this time capsule
1: yes yeah, do you mean the the yeah, future, the future audience, audience or the audience, the in, audience. in the present <laughs> Right, because they're always in effect two two audiences for time capsules. Uh, But yeah, so he's directing this to future antiquarians. Uh, So he called it an antiquarian box and he bequeathed it to the Historical Society. He didn't say, uh, he didn't give it its full name of the California Historical Society, which led to some problems in 1979 when it was opened. Uh, But uh, so yeah, he's directing this to antiquarians. He's thinking about these these, uh, sources. Um, these kind of artifacts and um you know coins and and various kinds of um, uh, uh, printed ephemera. and um but he's also directing him, his his uh, writings to future to a future public that would see his work as crucial, so that would recognize his important philanthropy and in particular his work for temperance. So he imagines uh, the uh, San Francisco of 100 years in the future as a kind of temperance utopia, a teetotal uh, kind of utopia. And um, because alcohol will have been um, banned, all other social problems also will have fallen away. And so it's a way, and this again is a common theme in early time capsules, and maybe more recent ones, uh, they've become a way to vindicate your own political viewpoints to imagine a kind of uh receptive audience in that uh, in that future
0: sorry because this time capsule was even designed to um allow people to get water um free water and so he's sort of making a statement around the design and also sort of promoting um something that he had patented so can you talk a little bit about that invention as well
1: sure yes so he he embeds this time capsule into the, into the kind of base of the Benjamin Franklin uh, monument. Um, and it's right downtown in the, in the middle of a, uh, of what's what was called the Barbary coast. So the epicenter of, of, uh, of kind of um, uh, you know, social inequality. And um and, but he also, as you mentioned, uh, puts a drinking fountain into this monument. In fact, dispensed uh, three or four different types of, of water. So a very advanced drinking fountain with ice for the summer. He he actually invented the ice system himself. And uh, so yeah, this monument was was meant to not only convey uh, these tokens of hope for a future teetotal utopia, but also was meant to transform working class San Franciscans into into water drinkers rather than beer drinkers. And it all has to do, the backdrop to this, which is not mentioned actually directly anywhere in the materials of, of this time capsule, but the backdrop is the, uh, the social upheaval of 18, uh, 1877. So two years earlier, uh, there was a massive uh, kind of uprising, uh, anti-Chinese uh, violence burning down of Chinatown, and the emergence of uh, Dennis Carney and his working men's Party of California, and uh, so this is uh, the major event of the, of the period in San Francisco. And of course, a lot of elites like Cogswell were, uh, you know, demanded, you know, greater policing and 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 more um, kind of um, control of the of uh, working class people. Uh, but uh, Cogswell's approach was more to kind of uh, to uplift the poor through through things like this Temperance Fountain. Uh, but he wanted to create the impression that san francisco was was not as um not as chaotic as it appeared to be, so there's a kind of a slight kind of airbrushing of the present for the future historian
0: well, and it's interesting he even hired um a young boy a young man to protect the monument didn't he? He was a little worried that something would happen yes. <laughs> to it
1: and... yes, that's right <laughs> and and this is one of the dangers of of putting uh putting time capsules into monuments um or even putting them. Uh, anywhere in public space, um, and tying them to things like temperance, which is a very unpopular cause in San Francisco in that period, um, because it then attracts uh, violence and attracts um, kind of graffiti. And in fact, uh, uh, a lot of um, a lot of boys in San Francisco apparently um, defaced it and put uh, rats up the um, up the uh, the faucets of the water fountain to. To scare people off. Uh, so um, uh, yeah, there's definitely uh, kind of a sense after that that um, time capsules need to be uh, deposited somewhere that will allow them to survive the the kind of vicissitudes of time and allow allow them to to get to their future date. Right,
0: and it's really before we move on to the third chapter. One thing I thought was really interesting in this one, and sort of moving away from this idea, was his also. Um, the role of the domestic arts and the role of allowing women uh, to contribute. And I found that really interesting and sort of fascinating to what he brought in or allowed in.
1: Yeah. Yes. And I think this is, um, again, another crucial theme throughout the book, especially in these earlier and middle chapters. Uh, and it's the, uh, the surprising kind of openness of the time capsule to collaboration and um, to a variety of different, Types of sources and contributors, and I compare this and I see this as a as a critique of um, of other institutions of memory in the period, such as museums and historical societies, libraries, archives, all of which were very tightly controlled and still, to some extent, are. And uh, whereas the time capsule was a was a kind of a, a, a counter a counter um, device, uh, something that was much more open of course there were still exclusions and there were still biases within them uh but they do certainly kind of um allow for a, more, a greater variety of material and political viewpoints and social backgrounds.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and so as you sort of talk about these sort of, the start of these time capsules, and then move into um, 1900, 1901, when time capsules start to be made uh, that will be opened a century later. Um, and you talk about how time capsules weren't, these time capsules weren't all really, um, all was really accepted and so, can you talk a little bit about that? About um, sort of time capsules and uh, sort of the negative responses to them, as well as the sort of positive responses to them.
1: Sure. Um, and some of these negative responses come up in in fiction, as I as I mentioned earlier. The uh, um, and Mark Twain, in particular, wrote a number of stories. One of which really. Uh, uh, focuses on the limits of the time capsule and the ways in which they're bound to fail yet he was still interested in them and he still did his own time capsule in effect which was his uh his um autobiographical manuscript which was meant to be sealed for 100 years to be opened 100 years after his death uh so sometimes critics could also be advocates of of the time capsule and um so i don't think it's um it's always a rejection of it. Uh, but in the case of, um, of some of these time capsules around 1900, 1901, um, well, in particular, the one at Harvard University, uh, that was rejected and critiqued by uh, certain professors, particularly uh, professors in the history department. And that that confirms my, my suspicion that there is a uh, perhaps a kind of a, a sense of condescension towards a time capsule as a more populist and um, collaborative and maybe more democratic um, form of history. And uh, so, yeah, a number of them didn't uh, accept the invitation to contribute to the Harvard chest of 1900. Although in an interesting turn, uh, the librarian, the head librarian who organized that time capsule included their rejection letters uh, in the actual uh, chest. So you can read about how they, uh, you know, how they uh, uh, found the time capsule to be a kind of uh, useless or, um, kind of um, misleading way of uh, preserving history.
0: And you, and like you said, throughout you sort of talk about different authors and talk about their roles, and and you talk even about um, some of the story. You talk about Whitman and his, what Whitman was talking about um, in your first couple chapters, and then. You move into Mark Twain, so I'm not sure if there's anything else you want to say right now about that role of literature, because I thought those that interweaving of that um, and sort of the way that literature marks memory and marks time was really interesting as well.
1: Uh, sure, I think um, uh, well, it actually goes back to to Edward Bellamy as well, looking backward uh, um, in a sense his uh, the Julian uh, Wests. Um, sleeping room, which is this, which is the chamber in which he kind of travels 100 and, 100 and, uh, uh, was it 123 years into the future from 1877 to 2000. Uh, that uh, sleeping chamber also contains objects, so it's kind of a de facto time capsule. Uh, but there is also a uh, a bank um, a bank uh, sorry a, a safe uh, in his room and in the follow up to looking backward, which is called equality. Uh, he explores uh, the various items that uh, Julian West brought with him um, to accidentally brought with him to uh, the year 2000. So uh, some of those are bank uh, or um, financial documents, which of course are useless uh, in this kind of post-capitalist utopia of the year 2000. So uh, even novelists like Edward Bellamy, who we don't associate with the time capsule, had elements of. Uh, of uh, time capsule ideas in those in those fictions.
0: Right. And one of the interesting things you, you say and you saw in some of these time capsules that weren't happening in the other one, so you talk about, for instance, the Kansas City sort of century ball, was including predictions of what they would see happening 100 years into the future. Um, so can you talk about those that sort of change as well in the role of prediction?
1: Sure. Yes. Yeah. So uh, predictions are... Definitely uh, a common kind of type of contribution in certain time capsules. Um, We we don't see them so much in the very first ones, but right by around 1900, uh, people are contributing not just genealogies of their family or 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 some kind of artifact um, or some kind of essay about the present, but they're also delivering predictions. And obviously, they are intended to be kind of read uh, and either confirmed or or seen as, or debunked uh, in when they're finally opened. And um, so I, I, I'm interested in these predictions, not just as kind of attempts to, to control or, or kind of determine the future, but uh, more as expressions of hope. So some of them talk about um, their prediction of uh, a classless society by the year 2000, when the time capsules opened, or uh, as a post-racial society. And so um, one of my Attempts, especially in these middle chapters, is to is to recover the politics of hope that is embedded in these time capsules and uh, the way in which they uh, communicate um, sometimes progressive utopias and sometimes uh, reactionary ones. Um, sometimes you you see kind of visions of a eugenicist uh, future, one in which uh, cl- uh, race has been purified and the Anglo-Saxon race has shored up its 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 uh, supremacy. Uh, but sometimes you also get uh, more progressive visions of the future. So, uh, yeah.
0: No, I was just going to say I found it really interesting, right? Some of them were writing about um, morality, mor- mortality and others were even writing poems and, and thinking about um, or even complaining about their colleagues. Uh, but I found it really interesting to just sort of see the kinds of things that um, individuals writing thought that, people in the future would want to know about what was happening or, or what they hoped for a future. Sure.
1: Yes. And I mean these are things that we, we struggle to find in other documents. Um there's something about the time capsule that seemed to engender these expressions of of hope and these uh these kinds of uh political uh predictions. And um and I think I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm uh, kind of uh, pushing back against the emphasis in, in, um, of, uh, of historians on the past, on the way in which the past is used, um, you know, the constructions of national past and the way that's used in certain periods to kind of shore up national identity or whatever it is. Uh, what I want to do is write a history of the past, of, of the various imaginations of the future um, that, um, you know, were kind of written about. Um, in certain periods. Mm-hmm. that makes sense? Yeah,
0: it does. Um, and so there is, and you talk about it as a sort of idea of a secret history, which I thought was a really interesting way of referring to it and thinking about it. So you then move on to um, sort of looking at, in your next chapter, that role of the um, memory of the present um how would we remember uh, you talk about a little bit of that and so can you sort of talk about that sort of um the political uses of the future and what you're talking about in your chapter four
1: yes so i stay with these so i call these the centurial vessels uh because they were uh they were not Centennial vessels, in the sense of the the first chapter, the U.S. Centennial, uh, but they were centurial because they were they were put together around 1900, 1901, and almost all, all but one of them were to be opened in the year 2000, or 2001. And uh, so I stay with them because really they're the crucial, they're, they're the, the most important ones for the whole book, in, in that they have this uh, this kind of politics of hope. Uh, within them. So in that chapter four, I stay with those time capsules. And I should mention, uh, we already said one was in Harvard. Uh, one was, I think you mentioned Kansas City. There was also one at Detroit and Colorado Springs and Mount Holyoke uh, College. Uh, so a variety of, of locations. Uh, none of them knew about each other. That's an important aspect to this, that they every, almost every time capsule in my book, every every uh, inventor of a time capsule uh, thought that they they were the first one to come up with the idea. Uh, But there are certainly several key themes between them. And uh, one thing that comes out in in this chapter four is other negative, the the kind of critiques of various aspects of the present, to get to your question. Uh, So critiques of um, uh, imperialism that comes out. Um, Of course, this is a period just after the uh, outbreak of the Spanish-American War. And a number of people, even, you know, even at, um, well, in fact, all across these different cities uh, were kind of uh, um, including uh, kind of a sense of misgiving about, about those empirist adventures. Uh, there are also critiques uh, of uh, the impact of technology on everyday life, the way in which uh, they felt they'd become overly dependent on technology. And um, and then also, of course, critiques of the inequalities, the gender, racial, and economic inequalities of their own cities and and their nation. So uh, I see these uh, critiques as being generated around 1900 by a number of things. But one key thing is the confidentiality that is now allowed for time capsule contributors. They were allowed to submit their their assessments of the present in envelopes, and they could seal them. So their messages will be unread in the present, and I think that liberated them to to be more candid about about um, about the conditions of the of the present.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, some of them talk about sort of uh, you you mentioned the idea of sort of urban progress and industrialization, but also the sort of criticism of the city. Um, I think it was in Colorado Springs where there there was talk about um, city government and how people sort of can't manage the affairs of the city. Well, Um, and and so there's different things like that, that, that are sort of playing with one another as well throughout these time capsules.
1: Yes. So yes, you see, uh, Critiques of civic corruption, and this is um, you know, obviously a key theme of the progressive era. Um, but uh, also, uh, with Colorado Springs uh, being so close uh, to Cripple Creek, uh, there were a number of labor battles, um, uh, actually, literally pitched battles between labor and and uh, and uh, capital. And um, Colorado Springs, the the person who who organized that time capsule, uh, invited uh, leaders of labor unions to to come in and contribute uh, their messages to the future so we see here uh these kind of uh, very moving kind of messages about um about fighting um capitalist greed and and kind of trying to create a uh, a kind of classless uh, commonwealth of workers and um one thing that comes out there is, is are the kind of um uh is this kind of is this theme, which again, I try to trace throughout the book, of an embodied future. So those workers are addressing the future workers uh, of uh, the year 2000. And they're expressing this kind of sense of solidarity, class solidarity across time. And um, what I wanted to do in the book was to kind of uh, critique the uh, emphasis that historians have had on the way in which the future has been rendered kind of abstract. Uh, rationalize the way in which we fail in capitalist modern to imagine an alternative future. Um, we think of the future supposedly in disembodied ways and uh, or in financial ways, we see the future as the just the statistical extrapolation of present trends. But what I wanted to show was that uh, through the time capsule, people were allowed were able to uh, to um, kind of conceive the future in more embodied, more open ways, and these labor Union leaders were a good example of that. Um, the way in which they kind of they uh, targeted their mess their messages to the the embodied reader of the future. So a, a lot of these time capsule messages around 1900 uh, talk about physical connections across time. The way they would embrace their reader or reach out and shake their hand, and this kind of very um, kind of um, personalized c- connection to the to future to posterity uh, allowed for a, a, an alternative way of imagining the development of of of, uh, of the United States.
0: So, and one thing that you do throughout the throughout your book, there's a number of photographs and images. Um, so, I'd love for you to talk about those. And I bring it up now because uh, in this chapter, we see photographs of there's this a stark image of sort of a mining coal mining town uh bicycles cars there's even a a drawing of um a woman uh that looks more like it's looking at sort of clothing and fashion and so can you talk about where there you know some of these images or sort of the role of this sort of role of the images that you continue to see when I mean, you talk about it in the first chapter but throughout these time capsules and throughout the text
1: sure yes yeah. so um uh... Whereas the first two time capsules back in uh, Philadelphia, the Centennial, they used photography as a as a way to memorialise the elite and perhaps also middle class people who paid money to have their portrait taken by this proper photographer. By 1900, you see uh, the use of photography as a kind of archival, you know, documentary tool. And uh, so, in each of these cities, uh, the time capsule organizer commissioned photographers, but also uh, you know, kind of uh, invited all sorts of amateur photographers to take a to create a survey of their environment and to document the the built landscape of their of their lives. And uh, you see some fascinating collections, uh, particularly at Harvard and um, and at uh, Colorado Springs. Um, you know, a large number of photographs that um, documented all sorts of things, not just the homes of professors like william james but also uh characters on the streets uh particularly um, a famous uh figure in harvard who was a uh who had a who led a cart and donkey uh through through uh through harvard uh over a number of over 60 or 70 years he was a kind of a, uh, a familiar figure on campus so all sorts of kind of documentation um comes into those uh those uh time capsules
0: Right. And then you sort of move into this idea of living history and archiving. And you talk about the, um, in chapter five, the Modern Historical Records Association. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and, and their use of sort of the time capsule and and who they are and, and sort of what they did?
1: Sure. Yes. Yeah. So the Modern Historic Records Association, and no one has heard of this association because it, it was very short lived and uh uh, only lasted a couple of years, uh, but I see it as crucial to the to the mutation of the time capsule into something uh, more akin to what we get by 1940, which is the Westinghouse 1939 to 40, the Westinghouse time capsule. So uh, uh, the association was founded in New York um, as a as a kind of um, ongoing kind of program of schemes to guarantee adequate records of the present for future historians. And in fact, it had a number of uh, current historians on its board. It, it kind of looked to the new history, um, people like Frederick Jackson-Turner and others as their kind of inspiration. And they wanted to um, do a number of things. First of all, um, uh, ensure that, that, um, that uh, cities and, and, and federal government kept proper records for the future and use proper, uh, proper um, durable forms of paper. Uh, but also they uh, used time capsules to partly to promote their project uh, but also to show how uh, you could set, you could uh, conserve documents over hundreds or even thousands of years. And uh, they enlisted um, uh, photographers, uh, phonograph uh, uh, te- uh, phonograph uh, inventors, in fact, Thomas Edison was involved. And uh, also film. So Thomas Edison's new kinetophone, uh, which is an early kind of attempt to create sound film, uh, he, uh, he that was also used uh, in some of those early projects. Uh, so it's about embracing and, and utilizing uh, modern technologies, but also ancient media such as um, uh, you know kind of parchment and um, terracotta, even to find a way to to kind of ser- conserve his, uh, materials for future historians.
0: So what I found was really interesting in this chapter is the role of the modern media, audiovisual, how they were using sort of media in different ways. So can you talk about that role of media and memory and archive um, that sort of happens with this um, modern historical records
1: association? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So uh, so as I mentioned, they they're, they're bringing in uh, photographers and um, and they bring in phono- uh, phonograph records and, and film uh but uh they're not um using them perhaps in the way we would we would assume they would be used uh they're trying to to combine them in different ways uh so i, I see this as in, an interesting kind of um kind of contrast to how we tend to kind of fetishize digital technology in our own in our own present and there's a, a you know big emphasis on digitization and and uh relying on on the digital itself and of course, there are dangers with that in in terms of first of all relying just on one one medium, uh, the dangers of kind of uh, of uh, obsolescence of media formats, um, but also perhaps uh, the sense that you kind of um, you lose a um, you lose the tactility that you might have from other other forms of evidence from the past. And so, what was interesting to me about the Modern Historical Records Association was how they didn't. Put all their eggs into one basket. They didn't rely just on on one medium. Uh, they saw uh, they saw it as necessary to have um, to have them working together. So, for instance, uh, when they submitted a film uh, for for um, preservation, they included a parchment, a record on parchment, describing it. Uh, another way, another thing they did was to combine uh, modern and ancient media, so to create these kind of hybrid media. An example of this was using the Linotype machine to to imprint text onto clay tablets. So you have the most ancient form of, on the anci- most ancient medium of all, which is terracotta clay, going back to Mesopotamia, uh, but then using the latest um, Linotype machine to imprint tiny print onto it. Uh, perhaps an early form of of microfilm. Uh, so another example, of this would be um, developing photographs onto stone or onto other harder. Um, harder kind of surfaces, and here I use, I draw on um, on the theorist, communication theorist Harold Innis, who is kind of one of the pioneers of communication studies, and um, he has this interesting distinction between heavy media, um, such as you know metal or clay, um, various things that you could imprint words onto and that would be very durable, and so heavy media he sees as time-binding, so sort of binding us across time. Whereas light media such as paper, um, and then in our own day electronic media, which is of course uh, super light, uh, he sees those uh, as uh, space binding, so allowing us to kind of reach out across space. And of course, we always have a combination of both time binding and space binding media in any in any uh, given present uh but what concerned him was a way in which uh uh sometimes the bias leads more towards one or the other. And he saw this period that I'm looking at, late 19th century America, as one that was dominated by space binding, light media, uh the expansion of obviously paper. And uh so what I suggested the time capsule was was introduced as maybe a corrective to that, as an attempt to to um reinforce um temporality in civilization. And um, you could think of the time capsule as, as, as itself a medium uh, for communication and one that was, um, you know, kind of mixing or interacting with other other media. Right.
0: And so uh, you move from this into, so we take a little break. There's a little dip in the time capsule as uh, the United States is, interest, is involved in um, some other more pressing issues at the time. And then you sort of talk about sort of that, interwar projects and you have sort of three projects that you talk about for in 1925 to 1940 so that we're sitting in between um uh world war one and world war two here in the united states so can you talk a little bit about then moving into this this uh, this next sort of phase or period of the time capsule
1: sure or- so i end although i continue up to the present in the epilogue but uh the uh the proper section of the book, um, uh, ends with, uh, the Westinghouse time capsule, but rather than see that as, as the kind of full emergence, the flowering of the time capsule, or as one, one historian one person has called it, uh, the first modern time capsule. I want to see the Westinghouse project as a kind of, uh, distortion, uh, a kind of, uh, an appropriate kind of corporate appropriation of what was in fact a civic tradition and a quite a collaborative and democratic tradition Um, and uh, so it's it's uh the end point here is is decidedly negative and uh so i show in this chapter how westinghouse um conscripted this time capsule idea as a pr strategy to kind of bolster public faith in science and technology and and technocracy in, uh, in the depths of the de- Depression, uh, as America was still in the Depression in 1939. and um, But I also uh, uh, place it alongside three earlier projects, also from the interwar period, mostly ni- early 1930s and late 20s. Uh, there was a uh, um, coin Harvey, who some historians might uh, recall. He was uh, a kind of agrarian populist, famous in 1896. Uh, during the election, uh, he uh, retired to uh, his his, uh, his his kind of uh, property in Monteney uh, Arkansas, and created a or well, started to create a pyramid, a 130 foot pyramid, that was uh, going to be stocked with um, records for some future civilization. Uh, so I look at that one, uh, and also a um, a project in Denver in the early 1930s to create uh, massive records. A massive collection of records uh, for uh, for future civilization, and that was deposited in um, in a concrete, actually two concrete mausoleums, and then finally the third one is the crypt of civilization, which was uh, assembled in in Atlanta at Oglethorpe University. So these three. Uh, kind of uh, less well known examples of time capsules uh, bring into view some of the more troubling aspects of uh, the time capsule tradition by the 1930s. The emphasis on technocracy, on uh, eugenics, although eugenics was a theme throughout the book, uh, it becomes much more prevalent by the 1930s, with uh, uh, all, th- all four of these projects being very closely tied to visions of, of a purified future race. Um, and also, I think the other, another troubling thing which I emphasize here is this kind of depersonalized conception of posterity. In fact, the whole book is—it's not just a history of time capsules. And I do want to kind of emphasize that uh, that uh, I wanted to write that history, but also tie the time capsule to broader themes. And uh, one of those, perhaps the most important one, is the issue of posterity and how we relate to future generations and uh going back to the conception of my book i was thinking about how uh we um uh how obviously a number of scholars and uh you know philosophers legal theorists have tried to kind of construct an ethics of posterity that would allow us to uh to respect the rights of future generations this is obviously crucial in our moment of uh, crisis with climate change and uh, although I, I uh, read a lot of that work, I felt that, that uh, it's not enough just to have legal and philosophical arguments about, uh, about uh, the right to posterity. We need to also foster an effective connection, an sen- emotional connection uh, with uh, unborn generations of the future. And so I see the time capsule as uh, a device that has tried to do that with greater or less success. And in fact, uh but going back to 1900, there was a, a, an a organiser of a time capsule in Colorado Springs who coined the term posteritism to define how he how this time capsule was to inculcate a sense of um, respect and love of uh, future generations. So what I've tried to do in the book is trace a history of the idea of posterity through this time capsule tradition. And I found that although there's, there's uh, abuses of the rhetoric of p- posterity, uh, across all these different chapters, the ways in which people invoke posterity to justify uh, kind of capitalist oppression or various other things, uh, there is at least in around 1900 a sense of an embodied relationship to the future recipient of the time capsule and the sense of um, being able to kind of embrace one another over time. And that was uh, that was enabled partly by this 100-year time span uh, it was just beyond one's lifetime but not too far that we wouldn't be able to kind of conceive of those future recipients but by 1930s we have um time capsules that reach out across much longer uh time spans uh 5000 years uh, or more and um uh, although uh you know these are obviously uh kind of challenge they present challenges of you know how to how to kind of preserve documents over that kind of that kind of uh time Uh, They also um, depersonalize the conception of posterity. So it's it's much harder to imagine the future recipient. And instead, you just get uh, endless uh, kind of um, reels of microfilm and and statistics about the present that you lose that sense of, of an ethical connection um across time
0: it's exactly i was very interesting because i was thinking as soon as the corporations sort of take over they create what they believe is their sort of utopian futures but as you refer to them these closed futures it takes away from earlier when you're talking about these letters that are written this hope that we see it, it just as soon as the corporations come in and this sort of capitalism takes over it it Move this away, even the images are these you know we move from these sort of small time capsules to these giant um, vaults, right where things are being stored in these giant vaults as opposed to very to more personal um, aspects. So it's really fascinating to see sort of that movement and that push
1: yes and, and i think also uh it's about size and it's also about a uh, number of feet of microfilm and and uh you know how many words they can cram into whatever space they have and uh what you don't get are the kind of personalized messages uh the way the kind of um um the essays that people were commissioned to write back in 1900 um on various topics uh, you don't get any kind of um, personal accounts. Instead, they're they're microfilming from uh, mainly from Encyclopedia Britannica in the case of the Westinghouse time capsule. So, so uh, they're they're not even you know putting pen to paper themselves. They're just uh, essentially microfilming existing texts.
0: And so you end right with the. Sort of opening of these time capsules and um, sort of breaking the seal. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that? About what you found? Because some of it was not as dramatic as you would think it would be.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I keep the uh, I very cruelly keep the uh, the reader in suspense about the fate of each of these time time capsules. And uh, so, the first six chapters. Uh, tell the history of, the, of these time capsules from 1876 to 1939. And then finally in Chapter 7, I reveal their their fate. And um, uh, interestingly, although people who put those time capsules together uh, in those earlier periods they fantasized about, you know, glorious reception ceremonies uh, with kind of uh, you know, the whole city or nation or the whole world uh, kind of uh, following the opening of a time capsule beamed across across the planet. And then they also imagined historians in ecstasy as they opened these boxes and found these incredible sources. Uh, but their actual reception was the complete opposite. They they encountered uh, 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 first of all the problems of of forgetting. So time capsules got lost and people never knew where they were or they forgot where they were located or they forgot that they even existed to begin with. Uh, and then also when they do get opened, uh, you, have a, you have a kind of sense of um, uh, indifference or, or perhaps condescension of of uh, spectators and, and the officials who opened them, uh, a sense of disappointment about what they contained. And uh, so I look at the various ways in which time capsules fail to achieve their perspectives. Yet I emphasize at the end of that chapter how, um, uh, although we tend to see the time capsules filled with trivial documents or banal artifacts, uh, if we read them against the grain, as I try to do in the book, uh, they reveal so much about how the pa- how groups in the past struggled over. Over the politics of memorialization and and uh, the implications of new media over social struggles um, and so on so I, I use that chapter to bring to tie some things together. And um, and explore the the kind of limits of time capsules as well as the no, possibilities. It's
0: fascinating. Um, I was thinking mm, I have a nine year old and she loves to get these these toys that you open and there's a surprise in them, right? And it, like when I was reading this, and I lived in Philadelphia for a while, so I love that that the Philadelphia like people have these ideas, like they thought the original Liberty Bell would be in there, whatever it might be. And what's going to be in there is very different than what is in there. So this sort of anticipation and sometimes the letdown but but having to sort of think about like what is actually in there versus what they're hoping to have in there and the big opens so it made me think of also um uh the vault that Geraldo Rivera opened I can't I can't even think of there was a big vault that he opened in the late 80s early 90s live on television and there was nothing in it oh, okay um
1: Right. That. Oh, yes, there, there have been cases yeah. of that. The hoax, it's uh, just, it's a, it's a right. hoax against the present.
0: <laughs> and so, yeah. you, so what do you think? Oh, I'll ask you one more question about this. This is, we, um, we've been talking for a while. Um, and you sort of end with this. Epilogue of the futures of the time capsule. So, so can you talk a little bit about like the the futures of the time capsule and and what you think the time capsule means for now and sort of memory now, especially with the technology that we that exists in the world.
1: Yes, I didn't want to end on a totally negative uh, kind of note with the Westinghouse time capsule, Uh, but uh, so what I do in the epilogue is is uh, you know trace the subsequent. Kind of development variety of approaches and attitudes to time capsules uh, since 1940. And um, I acknowledge the ways in which, uh, you know, um, uh, corporations and actually also space agencies with the case, in the case of NASA, uh, had stretched the these kind of ambitions of the time capsule with ever greater time spans and and uh, larger payloads for these time capsules, um, and um, you know in a way to kind of show off their their new technologies. Um, but by the 1970s, you see kind of uh, a kind of reaction against those kind of very ambitious kind of transmillennial uh, time capsules, and the reaction comes from a variety of uh, sources. Um, one is a sense of um, uh, um uh, one is a critique of the kind of uh the hubris of these projects and the the kind of uh, essentialism whereby uh, corporations claim to be able to represent all of humanity um but also um we get a reaction uh with the rise of of more vernacular time capsules so um especially during the bicentennial. Uh, we see people all across the country burying things in their backyards. So I, I want to kind of uh, uh, emphasize how, although the time capsule uh, gets kind of appropriated by corporations, it's still uh, continuing to kind of mutate in interesting ways. And it will continue to do so with the internet revolution and the rise of digital time capsules. And uh, of course, there are negative tendencies in all of these, the kind of uh, the solipsism of of time capsules that we Due to ourselves over the internet, you know, there are various websites that allow you to send a message to yourself in the future. Um, I want to also emphasize that the time capsule still has potential for uh, for, for a kind of a politics of hope, and um, I show how environmentalists and artists have tried to reinvigorate uh, the time capsule and uh, use it as uh, as a as a tool for uh, raising a sense of um, you know kind of uh, what the earlier time capsule advocate called posteritism uh, a respect for future generations and uh so i think it's important to remember that that uh, although we tend to see time capsule ceremonies getting conducted in exactly the same way every year it seems like it's become very uh formulaic and uh repetitive you know there's a there's a precise way of doing it a protocol and it's repeated endlessly i think it's really important to reinvent the time capsule and and artist's have helped us do that and finding different ways to kind of uh, to, to, to vary this project.
0: Yes, I have to say, I lived in um, Norway uh, for a year, then just got back about six months ago, and it was, made me very happy that you ended with the Future Library um, and that idea of this Margaret Atwood book sitting there that no one will read, no one that I know right now will probably read it, but this beautiful idea of art and history and also environmental right there's a big ceremony every time these books are handed over and these trees being planted in this forest so that time capsule is really lovely
1: yes i think it's a fascinating project but particularly the connection between between conserving these unread manuscripts of novels to the the forest that would need to be planted in order to publish those and to print those books a hundred years from now so uh uh, that's the real point. It's not uh, the Margaret Atwood novel and all the other novels that, that have contributed every year, one each year. Uh, they're just the kind of the bait that get us uh, kind of fascinated with it. But the real message is in the is in the cultivation of of uh, the natural world cultivation of of forests.
0: Right. And so we've talked about this for a while. Uh, Do you have anything you're working on now that you'd like to share or mention?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm uh, working on uh, not on time capsules anymore, uh, but uh, I'm working on a a, a project uh, uh, that was done around 1900. Uh, It was a photographic survey of Broadway, the whole length of Broadway from the bottom of Manhattan uh, all the way to the top. And uh, it was done by a, an amateur photographer and uh, documenting all the things that were being erased from Broadway um, when the subway boom took place around 1904. And so it's it, it kind of combines my early interest in ruins because uh, Broadway seems to be a kind of a scene of of ruins and relics and holdouts that are being you know gradually erased. Um, so it's a combination of ruins and perhaps time capsules in the sense that this, this, these photographic albums, there were three volumes of photographs uh, have been, um, haven't been kind of haven't seen the light of day for almost 100 years. So there, it is a kind of kind of a time capsule of New York history.
0: Wonderful. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. Uh, again, this was Nick Yavon who wrote Remembrance of Things Present, The Invention of the Time Capsule. Um, Nick, thanks for being with me. This again is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular
1: Culture. Thank you.